The Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 1. I'm just wondering whether I need to read it all because we had, with the song, we sang with all the names. <laughs> An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah for tame, by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Isaiah. Isaiah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, and Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abidu. Abiud fathered, the, uh, fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Elud, Elud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David of 14 generations and from David unto the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicity, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth 
to a son, and he named him Jesus. Hello. There we go. Good morning. Uh, Larissa, you're pregnant. There's some options there for names. Um, Look, we finally reached uh, the point in our Garden to Garden City series where we actually meet Jesus. We meet the Messiah. Everything has been leading up to this point. Everything, as we've seen, has pointed us towards the Christ child coming. Right from God's initial promise to Adam and Eve that one day one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, one day one would come who would restore the sin problem and fix that in the world, and this, this desire or this need for a saviour has become painfully obvious as we've been travelling through our series. And we saw last time that in the book of Chronicles that was um, kind of most obvious to the people. You know, as the Old Testament comes to a close, at least in the, in the order that the Hebrew Scriptures have them, we saw how this author of Chronicles looks back over the whole of Israel's, uh, over really all of, of the Old Testament's history, and he surveys the landscape of Israel's history and he comes to this conclusion that we are still waiting for the Messiah. We were waiting for the Messiah when God called Abram uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees and promised to make him into a great nation. We, they were waiting for the Messiah when, when God said to Abram, I will bless you and I will make your name great and through you the whole world will be blessed. They were waiting for a Messiah when God calls Israel out of Egypt and appointed Moses to lead them out of slavery and they were waiting for a Messiah when Israel finally got a king, this great king uh, David, who, um, Israel's greatest king, when he committed adultery, we saw that he was not the one and we are still waiting. We, along with Israel, were waiting for the Messiah when Israel was carried off into exile for one who would come and, and save them out of the clutches of the enemy, one who would restore the people of God. And we saw as Israel returned back from exile and as they are restored to, uh, to the nation and to Jerusalem that there is this great, amazing party. Uh, we read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah and how the people returned back to the pure worship of God but within just a few small years they returned back to their wicked ways and the author of Chronicles comes to the conclusion that even then they were waiting for a Messiah. In the intervening 400 years since that day, the Messiah still had not come. The prophets had spoken. One would come who would fix the hearts of the people. One would come who would give the people uh, hearts of flesh instead of this heart of stone and, and uh, that they would turn constantly toward Christ and, and uh, towards God and worship Him truly. That their hearts would finally beat to the rhythm that God had created within them that people would finally, his people would finally worship him in spirit and in truth, and it just doesn't happen. And they're waiting. And that's how the Old Testament ends. The story looking for a conclusion. The people wanting to find their answer. The people are still waiting. They were waiting for the promised anointed king 
to come and restore them, to free them from their sin. They were waiting for a true David to come from the Davidic line of kings, from the royal line of David. They were waiting for one of Abraham's descendants through whom this whole world would be blessed. They were waiting and waiting and that's how the the Old Testament ends, with this pregnant pause, if you will. When would the Messiah finally come? And then you flip the page and you start reading Matthew chapter 1 and here he is. And Matthew makes this stunning claim, a claim that this person, Jesus, the one which, uh, is the one which God's people has been waiting for for centuries and he's finally here. Now, as we've seen, Israel has had somewhat of a coloured history up until this point. They've been a people, they've been set apart for God for a few thousand years by this point. They've been to exile, they've returned, they've been waiting for 400 years and now Jesus is born. And Matthew is writing to primarily this Jewish audience, the people of Israel. And for him to make a claim that this is the Messiah after God had not done anything, at least in their eyes, for 400 years, after all this history, after all they had gone through, after all these heroes of faith that fail after every disappointment of every previous kind of Messiah figure, Matthew has to defend his position. He has to prove his point. He has to show that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that they had been waiting for, not just another one in a long line of ultimate disappointments. The true Messiah, the true King, has to come from David's line. And so he wants, us to show, uh, he wants to show us that Jesus is the king who comes from that line. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, um, he actually goes about through, throughout the rest of the book of Matthew to show that Jesus is this anointed special Davidic king. And he quotes the Old Testament a whole bunch of times throughout his gospel. But here he wants to start with where did Jesus come from? What is his genealogy? He wants us to see how Jesus fits into this big picture story of Israel. How Jesus has the the right lineage, even though, as Sarah said, his his background is kind of um, kind of messy. And so he arranges Jesus' history into these three lists of 14 people. Now, I don't know about you, but this has always struck me as rather convenient and a little bit clean, right? Uh, I mean, it is possible, God being God and being all-powerful, that, it, that he would arrange things exactly so that there would be 14 people between Abram and David and exactly 14 people between David and Jeconiah uh, as they returned from exile and exactly 14 people, generations between that person and Jesus. It's, it's possible. God is God and he could arrange things that way if he wanted to. But the list we read is not the same list that we had in the song, is it? In fact, if you read Luke's genealogy of Jesus, we see that it's different to Matthew's. And then we all start freaking out because the Bible is contradicting itself. No, neither of them are wrong. They were writing with a different purpose in mind. So Luke is writing from kind of a uh, Greek worldview, historical account of Jesus' life. Luke is a little bit more, if you like, scientific. He's kind of a, he sort of thinks like we think. Matthew is writing to prove to Jews that Jesus was the messianic messiah king. 
that Israel had been waiting for. Now, in um, uh, and so so what happens is that Matthew then drops out a few people from the genealogy to prove that Jesus comes from David's line. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. All the gospel authors arrange their material in some sort of way to make the point that they want to see. Every author ever does that. If you're writing a, a PhD thesis, you're missing out some bits and including other bits to make a point, right? That's what you do. If you write a book, you do the same thing. And Matthew does the same thing. So he doesn't give us a, uh, in his gospel, he doesn't give us a straight chronology of Jesus' life. He actually arranges his material kind of thematically to prove that Jesus is this Messiah King. And he does the same thing in the genealogy. Now, something we don't understand, but what was true of the time is that Jews, um, uh, the Jewish people of the time, they put a lot of stock in a thing called a gematria. So, this is the process of assigning numerical values to, the, to certain words based on the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, David's name is, comes to 14. So, when you do that with David's name, you get the number 14. And so not only in the list is Jesus connected through David in these 14 generations, actually David is also the 14th person in the list, if you go and count them. And so what Matthew is trying to do is through this Jewish kind of mindset to link Christ through this gamatria to David. He wants to show how, how tightly Jesus is connected as the Davidic king. Now if that's confusing to you, don't worry about it. Because Matthew was a tax collector. He was an accountant and so he linked Jesus to David in a way only an accountant could appreciate. But nonetheless, it's there. So now you know. And so the sto- that's the story. That's the, that's the introduction of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. That's how he's introduced. But what I think is far more interesting is who's actually in the list. Who did he keep in the list? And that's the second thing I think we need to think about. We've seen the king's introduction in his, in his genealogy. Now I want to look at what's actually in the king's blood. Now before I do that, I want to share with you a little bit of my bloodline, my story. Uh, this is who I am. So I'm B3C7D1E6F4G6H4I4J5K2. That's me. I'm actually the K2 in that list. Uh, Now, these numbers represent my lineage, my parentage. The very first person, the very first Pretorius is A. Okay? And then each generation afterwards is represented by a consecutive letter. Each number represents a child of the previous generation uh, that that person is. So, uh, so each number, sorry, is is the third, like B3 is the third child of A, the family father. And then my family comes from his seventh child, so C7, and the first child of his child and so on. So I am the second child of the fifth child of the fourth child of the fourth child of the sixth child of the first child of the seventh child of the third child of our family father. That's who I am. Now, Andres Pretorius was the first president of, of South Africa. He is in that E generation. Uh, and so um, my family ancestor, that E is his brother, so I can't claim to be blue-blooded, but uh, that's his brother. Now, none of this matters, of course. We're all just human beings, but 
Um, but your history, in your history, what is in your blood becomes important if you want to act according to your ancestry, right? If you want to prove some sort of royal lineage or something. Now, as you all know, for many years, South Africa had this policy of apartheid. This was a political system of segregation based on race and ultimately became the grounds for discrimination and some very bad hate crimes. We, we all know that, particularly against black and coloured people, people of mixed race as well. And like many South Africans, the mighty um, Pretorius family participated and benefited in this system. But little did they know that brown blood runs in our veins. Because our family story, there is this lady whose name is Helena. She is an Indian slave. She married, uh, so she had a daughter and she married someone, or she took on the surname Forslu. So Helena Forslu married into the Pretorius family as a slave child. And guess who she married? She married that guy. So every Pretorius from this side of the family tree, including our famed ancestors for whom Pretoria is named, first president of the Republic, we are all descendants of an Indian slave girl. It's an uncomfortable truth if you're going to persecute people for the color of their skin. And so when we have Jesus' family tree, we, we see how Matthew chooses to cut out a few people, but he wants to link Jesus to David. And so it's interesting to think about who does he include and who does he cut? Well, we've got the obvious people, don't we? We've got Abram, he's the fulfillment of, uh, so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram that the whole world would be blessed. So he gets the tick. Isaac is there, this baby born by miracle to a barren woman uh, in her later years. Jesus too is about to be born by a miracle. So it kind of sets the scene. Jacob, the first Israelite, he's there, but he's a deceiver. And he ultimately has his name changed by God to Israel. And Jesus is the ultimate Israelite, the one who truly lives as God's chosen person and the way they were supposed to. Judah is there, the tribe of Israel, who stayed true to the worship of God when the rest of Israel abandoned uh, worshipping God. And Jesus is the one who truly never worships an idol. He never sins. He worships only God the Father. Boaz is there, one of these kinsmen redeemers who looks after the widow Ruth and becomes an ancestor to David. Jesus would one day become a redeemer, in a sense, to everyone who would look to him. Of course, we have the kings, David and Solomon, uh, the greatest and the wisest king of Israel. Jesus would be greater and wiser than both of them put together. And so there's, there's good in his family tree. But realistically, that's about it. For the good side. What I find far more interesting is who the bad people are. Rehoboam is there, the one who was part of the, the civil war that split Israel apart. Ahaz is there, who according to my Bible dictionary has, quote, the dubious distinction of being one of the worst apostate kings in Israel's history. So what Ahaz did is he set up shrines all over Jerusalem. He offered sacrifices to pagan gods. He led Israel into political, moral, religious chaos. And after him comes Manasseh, who's probably the worst of Israel's kings. He heavily promoted worshipping idols, but he also instituted human sacrifice. He was part of necromancy, so dead magic. 
He consulted dead spirits. He brought in magic and divination. He did more evil than the nations whom God had expelled out of Israel before him for their wickedness. And in fact, when you read 2 Kings uh, chapter 21, verse 16, this is the summary of his reign. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. This was in addition to his sin that, caused, that he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. This guy is in Jesus' bloodline. Remember how God describes all throughout the Old, is, uh, Old Testament how idolatry and adultery are the same sort of thing. There's kind of the sexual promiscuity on behalf of his people as they worship other idols. It's on the same par as a, as a husband or wife committing adultery. That's how God sees sin. And so I don't think it's surprising that the four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy remind us of this too. First we have Tamar. She ha- had an incestuous relationship with Judah, her father-in-law, and she bore these twin sons, Perez and Zerah. There's Rahab, who is a prostitute. Ruth is a Moabite Tess. Now, she, we don't know for sure that she was bad, but the Moabites were known by the Israelites as people of great sexual promiscuity and immorality. And it is true that she spent one rather shady night at Boaz's feet, which is a kind of euphemism for something else entirely. Then there is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. She's included in this genealogy only because of her adultery with David, which he caused, but she was there. And so unlike a character from the stories we like to read, you know, where there's this character who secretly bears this undiluted, pure blood of the royals, Jesus' bloodline leaves much to be desired. So why are they there? Why did they make the cut? Why would God choose sovereignly to have his son born to this line that includes prostitutes and foreigners and murderers and swindlers and necromancers uh, and the least godly king Israel had it? Why are they there? One commentator answers it this way. He says, why are these people included in the line that leads to Christ? For exactly the same reason that your name makes it into the list that leads from Christ. Solely because of the grace of God. You see, God is in the business of saving sinful, immoral outcasts through Jesus. People like Tamar and Rahab and David and Manasseh, people like you and me, Jesus saves them. His ancestry makes him one who can save all the nations. Yes, his heritage makes him one of all of us. He has human heritage and divine heritage. He has Jewish heritage and Gentile heritage. He has royal heritage and common heritage. He has this perfect heavenly father, but also an imperfect human father. He has mortal heritage and immortal heritage. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills and yet he's born poor and in a stable. There is someone in his heritage to which every person can relate. 
He has all of these people in his bloodline so that he can save all of these types of people. Jesus has all of them in his family tree so that your name can be included in his family tree. They are there so that we can be his children. So we've seen the king's introduction. We've seen the king's blood. I think we have to look, lastly, just at his purpose as well. And I'll read here from Matthew, uh, from verse 20 to 25. You might have to help me, Henry. I don't think I can tap through the pages here. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, this is Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and named him Jesus. Now in the Bible, names have special meanings. As parents, you probably spend a long time naming your children. We certainly spend a long time debating our children's names. Uh, Reuben means behold a son. Theodore is Greek for a gift of God. His middle name is James, which is a lovely name, but it means deceiver. Uh, something that is actually not true of him, which is lovely. Hugo is a Germanic name which means bright or intelligent and Lucy is from the Latin lux, meaning light. She brings light into our lives. There's actually another little lux here this morning, so that's lovely. Uh, we take a lot of time naming our kids, but during the Bible times, names had far more significance than we give them today. A name was a person's identity. It wasn't just something you called someone, it was who you were. And so when God calls Abraham, uh, he, uh, he gives him this new name. He changes it from Abram to Abraham because he's promising that he's going to make him the father of many nations, which is what his name means. Jacob is changed from deceiver, which is the Greek version of that is James, um, to Israel because he wrestled with God, which is what Israel means. When his disciple Simon is given the task of establishing the early church and, and bear, bringing the good news uh, to the world, he shouldn't be flaky. And so Jesus names him Peter, which means rock. Right. So in our text we're introduced to Jesus and we learn about his bloodline and so on. And then Jesus, uh, Matthew teaches us about Jesus' names. He wants to show us Jesus' purpose for being born. One of the names he is given is Emmanuel. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, if you've lived in a Western country for any amount of time, you know that at Christmas time we celebrate the Emmanuel who comes. And, but we miss the significance of that. Every Christmas time we hear this story, we sing of Emmanuel, we know that it means God with us, and then we get on with opening our presents. But having walked through the Old Testament with you, you will now recognize just how significant this actually is. I mean, think about it. In the Garden of Eden, 
God walked and talked with Adam and Eve, with his people. He was truly God with us, with them. But then sin came into the world and all of a sudden it was God away from us. And the story of Israel is really the story of how God and Israel has tried to coexist together, but not really. God was with them in his desert journey, but he came as a pillar of fire or cloud, not as a person walking and talking with them. When he meets Moses, he meets him in a burning bush as this consuming fire that doesn't consume. When God is with them in the tabernacle, he's with them, but not really. To be able to meet him, uh, to be able to be with his people, there's this tent, the tabernacle, it's set up in the middle of the camp. But for Israel not to be burnt up by God's wrath at sin, for them not to be consumed by his fire, he also has to be separated from them. In the middle of the tabernacle, on the inner inside, was the Holy of Holies, a place that was set apart ritualistically and cleansed from sin ritualistically so that God could be with his people but sort of separate. And then outside of that room was the holy place and only the priests could enter there. And then outside that was the courtyard where the normal people could go. So yes, God was with them, but he wasn't really with them. And then later when the temple was built, the same thing happened. God was with his people but separated from them in exactly the same way because of their sin. And if you actually came into God's presence uh, in that context, you were, you were zapped, you were killed because God and sin cannot coexist. And then after Israel comes back from, the te- from exile and they rebuild the temple again, God never, never comes again in the same way as he had before. He was never present with his people like he was before because the ark which represented ultimately Christ's blood on the cross was gone. And then for 400 years God did not Israel did not hear from God. So there were no prophets proclaiming God's word. There were no miracle pillars of cloud, no burning bushes, no glory clouds filling the temple. And so for God God and Israel were not together. God was not with them. But here comes one who is God with us. And shockingly, God doesn't come like a burning bush. He doesn't come in a glory cloud or in a storm or a fire, but in a baby boy. And finally, again, God can walk and talk with his people. Jesus is the Emmanuel God with us. We shouldn't miss the significance. But also Jesus is called Jesus. He is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus can be Emmanuel, God with us, only because Jesus is Jesus, the one who will save. And he saves us from our sins ultimately on the cross. You know, there is an ancient hymn written in the 1700s And it says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is ultimately how Yahweh saves. Through this fountain of blood that comes from God with us as veins. Friends, don't you see this has all been leading up to this point? where God is with his people. 
In fact, the, the, um, John, when he writes about Jesus' coming, he said, And the Word became flesh, and he tabernacled with us. He came to be God, like God was supposed to be in the tabernacle with his people. We have travelled a long journey together from the Garden of Eden. And we have seen all the ways that God's people have tried to save themselves and how time and time again uh, they reject God and they walk away from him. And you and I would be the same if it was not for Jesus' blood. You see, soon after this episode in Matthew, a mere 33 years or so, Jesus would enter another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, betrayed by his friend, he would ultimately go to the cross and he would take our sins on his shoulders and he would die in our place so that Yahweh can finally save and so that we can finally experience Emmanuel, God with us. So that we would not be destroyed in God's presence because of our sin but we can be with Christ Jesus before God and we can approach the throne of God not timidly but boldly because we are being, we are being cleaned by his blood. Hallelujah, yes? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved uh, to sin no more. Ever since by faith we saw that stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming blood has been my theme and shall be till I die. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. May that be true of you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a gift it is to be your people, to be washed by the blood of Christ so that we can experience Emmanuel, God, with us. Lord, thank you that you saved. What a gift it is to be your people, Lord. Help us to turn our eyes ever more to the cross, to live with the gratitude uh, that this momentous thing um, means for us. We pray that you will give us a real sense of, um, of our, just I guess our place before you. We thank you, Lord, that we are where we are because of what you have done for us. May we never turn bitter, May we never turn um, and lose sight of what you've done for us. And yet may we live in thankfulness for what you've done. We pray, Lord, that you will never let us lose sight of the fact that we are washed by your blood. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.